Matthew, the 18th chapter. And let me put everything in context before we start reading. As we are reading here, these are the events that have just happened. The first thing of major significance that has happened in chapter 17 is the Mount of Transfiguration. When Peter, James, and John saw Jesus for who he really was, as he had audience with Moses and Elijah, when all of a sudden they realize he's more than just a human being, he is God. Mm. Now, the disciples of just three of them have just come out of this moment. And you know they were beside themselves. What do we do, Lord? Do we build three tabernacles? What, what do you want us to do? They didn't even know what to do. They wanted to bow and work. They didn't know what to do. Sometimes I don't know what to do with Jesus. Have you ever had moments that you don't know what to do with Jesus when he comes on you so strong? You feel the power of the Holy Spirit moving inside of you. and You don't know whether you want to run or shout or get quiet or, or just let your goosebumps shed goosebumps. You just don't know what to do. So the Mount, Mount of Transfiguration has just happened, and then Jesus teaches them because they find themselves inept in a deliverance situation. I'm getting a little bit of ring out of this mic. Turn me down just a hair. So they're having trouble casting a demon out of a man who's demonized. We make this thing way too big and way too complicated, and we try to get too ooey-spooky. The devil is no match for Jesus. It doesn't have to be weird, and you don't have to watch people act like idiots. You stop him in his tracks by the authority of the power of the name that we have in his name. So Jesus teaches them how to deal with demons. And, of course, we know in the word when he sent them out, they all went out and they cast out devils and they came back rejoicing over that. And Jesus put it in proper context for them. He said, rejoice not because spirits are subject to you, but rejoice because your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. All you got to do to help someone who's demonized is get them into the presence of Jesus. And guess who lives in you? <laughs> yeah, inside of you is the hope of glory, Christ Jesus. All they have to do is encounter Christ. If they encounter Christ, even legion with 6,000 demons ran to Jesus and was delivered. The only people you cannot deliver are those who refuse to let go of their demons. I don't know why I'm going here. Don't know why I'm saying all this, but the Lord just laid it on my heart. Here we are. Then comes another major event. He gets them straightened out and teaches them about deliverance and rebukes them for their little faith. And then Jesus goes on a teaching lesson, and he says, Peter, is it right for the church to have a temple tax? <laughs> and Peter goes, no. And Jesus says, you're right. But in order to keep peace, I want you to go fishing for me. 
because it's time for me to pay temple tax. And so I want you to go down and go fishing. And when you do, when you catch that fish, open his mouth and take out the coin. Did you find any coins on your trip? <laughs> okay, that was a big fish. You might have got a pretty good coin out of that. I don't. <laughs> so, this is a little unknown fact that I didn't know. Jesus tells him to do that and says, "Then go pay the temple tax." But in the Amplified, it gives us the full implication of what's said there. He says, "Listen, I want you to go fishing for me." And take the coin and pay my temple tax. And while you're at it, pay yours too. Come on. That's my God. He makes a way where there is no way. Mm. So with the lessons of transfiguration and dealing with demons fresh on their mind, with the lesson of wrongful behavior by the church, the disciples ask Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? thinking the answer will be them. Oh, oh look, look how quiet the church got. Yeah, the disciples thought, it's us. Who's the greatest? It's us. We're with Jesus. And he's teaching about the kingdom, and he's letting them know that the church of the day is so far from the truth. So in their mind, it's us. It's us. And Jesus brings them an illustrated sermon. Are you ready? All right. I'm going to read out of the Amplified, a little word here today. At that time, the disciples, verse 1, came up and asked Jesus, who then is really the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Remember what I told you. They think it's them. Look what he does. And he called a little child to himself and put him in the midst of them. They're probably scratching their head right now. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you repent, change, turn about, and become like little children, trusting, lowly, loving, forgiving, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven, and in the Amplified, it has parentheses, at all. Whew. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Verse 4. Whoever will humble himself, therefore, and become like this little child, trusting, lowly, loving, and forgiving, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives and accepts and welcomes one little child, this for my sake and in my name receives and accepts and welcomes me. If you receive even the least of these is what he's saying. If you will receive even children as important in the kingdom, you receive me. You will find me because your heart will be right. Your heart will have turned. Your heart will have repented. Your heart will let you know that you love others like 
you love me. Is this too hard? Because it's about to get that way. Now, if there's anything I despise in this life, it is a demon that pushes someone's flesh to molest a child, to touch a child. I have to get saved over and over and over when I get that kind of knowledge because the first thing I want to do is try out my new 410 shotgun. And I want to, you know, there's a lot of woods beside the church. I'll say nothing else. Of course, the Lord won't allow me to do that. He makes me get my heart right. Because people who are trapped are trapped. As much as I hate particular sins, and God abhors particular sins, he still loves the sinner. Verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones. Now, he's not talking specifically just children. He's using them as an illustrated sermon. He's talking about a heart condition. Are you with me? But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in and acknowledge and cleave to me to stumble and sin, that is who entices him or hinders him in right conduct or thought, it would be better more expedient and profitable or advantageous for him to have a great millstone. Do you know what a millstone is? That's the stone that women in, in, in the first century would grind meal on. In third world countries, there's still women who do this. It's a large stone. It's a heavy stone, and it has to be a wide stone so that they can grind grain so that they can make bread. Look at this. It would be more advantageous for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be sunk in the depth of the sea. Now remember, these are the words of the loving Jesus. The church has gotten so into greasy grace that we don't understand that he, even though he is the Savior, the Messiah, and the, the giver of grace for me to get out of my sin, he's also coming back as judge. We've gotten so squeamish we don't even want to talk about that. We don't even talk about hell anymore because we're too squeamish. We might get sued. Somebody might get distressed about thinking there could possibly be a place of punishment and we could get litigated. <laughs> this place is quiet. Like, what are you going to do, Pastor? What are you going to pull off here? I just can't get squeamish. I don't have time. There's no time left for the church to continue playing games. We've got to tell the truth. 
I don't condemn anybody to hell. That is not my job. But I do warn people if I think they're in a burning building. Because I want them to get out alive. I want them to escape what could happen to them. I want them to escape destruction. Mm. All right. This is fixing to get us in trouble. Are you ready? We've already told you that if you cause someone to sin, just go hang a big necklace called a grinding stone to your neck. Go find a deep place in the ocean and jump in. Poof. Look at this. In fact, I'm going to interrupt where I'm going right now. Look at your neighbor and say, watch who you're hanging with. Oh, come on now. Watch who you're hanging with. Now, realize what Jesus is doing. Jesus is teaching the disciples who want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom. Here's the context. Who's the greatest? They've seen him in the Mount of Transfiguration. They've seen his power to, to eradicate demons. They've seen him do creative miracles. How in the world did that fish find a coin? Now they want to know, oh, Master, are we going to be able to do this too? Come on. How many don't want to work the miracles of Jesus? We, we all do. We want to see people change. We want to see people's lives change. The difference is their motivation. Right now, they're, they're not the same disciples who spilled out of the upper room at the birthing of the church. Right now, they're still students. And so they're excited about the, the implications of we're going we're gonna to have thrones beside the master. When he comes into his kingdom, and they think he's going to do it here on earth, when he comes into his kingdom, we're going to be VIPs. Yeah, very ignorant people. I mean, very important people. <laughs> very important people. So he's giving them a picture. If you follow the pattern of the church of the day, if you don't approach your spiritual walk with this same heart attitude as a child, trusting, lowly, loving, forgiving. You ever been with a little child? You can say something harsh to a little one, and they'll turn right around and forgive you. huh? It's only as we grow and begin to mature that we get so hard-hearted. But as children, even children oftentimes in abusive situations, and that breaks my heart to the core of who I am, but even children in abusive situations still love their mom and daddy. And wouldn't want to be away from them and wouldn't want to be without them even though they sometimes are the subject of abuse. That is the heart we have to have, is God. It doesn't matter what the world does to me. I'm going to love them anyway. That's why I didn't clean my shotgun. I got to love the world where they are. I got to have a lowliness of mind not to think I'm something and I'm somebody. He's teaching them something because right now they just want to be important. 
And he's teaching them, it's not about you being important. It doesn't matter your stature. It doesn't matter your economic situation. What matters is your heart. You can be wealthy and ignorant. You can be wealthy and arrogant. Or you can be wealthy and submitted to God. Come on. And this is what he's trying to get across to them. But now we get to verse 7. If you have an exacto knife, cut this verse right out of your Bible. We can't do that. Verse 7. Woe to the world. For such temptations to sin and influences to do wrong. Woe to the world. Oh my goodness. For such temptations and sins to, and influences to do wrong. It is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the person on whose account or by whom the temptations come. He's helping them. He's saying, lose this mindset, boys. Don't allow someone to influence you. Don't let the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the lawyers of the law who are on the take from Rome, who are padding their bank accounts and acting pomp and arrogant and putting putting burdens too tough on everyone around them. Do not act like that which is what you're starting to act like. <laughs> so here's what he tells him. Woe to the world for such temptations to sin and influences to do wrong. It's necessary that temptations come. I mean, no, we're tried. We're tried in this life and temptations are going to come. But whoa, there's two woes in that one verse. To the person on whose account or by whom the temptation comes. Then in verse 8, and he moves on, he gets into the discourse, and I may read it some of it here later. If your foot offends you, cut it off. Oh, it's time to preach now. <laughs> if your hand offends you, separate it from yourself. It would be better to go to the kingdom without a foot, without a hand. If that hand is going to keep getting you into sin, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. How many pastors you think today are preaching, pluck your eye out? Now, I don't want to be gross, but in days gone by, there used to be people who take, you can't take everything in the Bible literal. You have to understand that there sometimes are pictures that Jesus is painting. And there have been people in times gone by who have pulled their eyes out at the altar. I know that sounds gross. I didn't, I, I guess that's a shock factor. I didn't intend to. But it's happened because they take a literal interpretation of what's being said here. 
He's not telling you to maim your body. He's telling you to cut off the things that are dragging you into a sinful condition, especially if the sinful condition that you keep doing over and over and over, we call those uh, iniquities. If your iniquity, your known sin that you haven't given up yet, just keeps coming back and coming back and coming back, and it's real easy for you to go, hey, buddy, Come on, let me show you something. And you you attract somebody else into your behavior. He's saying, whoa! In fact, if I was going to title this message, write it down. It's woe to the woe. Whoa, like slowing down a horse, W-H-O-A. Whoa to the W-O-E. Whoa, slow down. Don't get yourself in a position where you hurt somebody else, drag somebody else into your troubles, into your sins, because it's not advantageous for you. In fact, just go hang a millstone around your neck, jump in the lake. Look at this. Here we go. I got to find it. Where is it? Jesus. I have something hidden here. Where is it, Lord? We pause for station identification. Where is it? What happened? Did I leave something laying over there? I found it. (laughs) Yesterday, out of all the years, Pastor Terry... Pastor Steve, that I've been in the ministry, and that's, I figured it up this morning on the way, in 53 years I've been born again, been in ministry 43 or 4 years, all the time and all the word and all the times I've read through the Bible, do you know I never studied the word woe? I thought the word woe... I knew, I knew it had to do with judgment. I knew it had to do with God saying, hey. But I didn't know what it really meant. Uh, how many want to know? Come back next week. <laughs> this is pretty, whoa. I have a feeling because of the time factor today that this is going to have to be two parts. So let's end with this today, but I'm going to tell you what woe means. And we'll come back because this gets deeper. Is that okay? Look at this. I got this from, hang on. This was written by a gentleman by the name of Jack Wellman. As I was studying and I pulled this up, I read this and I went, Whoa. The word woe, W-O-E, is often used to express grief. Grief. So understand this. If God says woe, who's grieved? It's often used to express grief, regret, Misfortune 
or grievous distress stated from such a great affliction of some sort or being in such trouble that an escape out of it seems impossible. Sometimes a woe is almost beyond descriptions and words fail us. So a woe may be the only thing we can say to express our feelings. Very much like when we groan. So what this is telling us when Jesus says woe. Remember he and the father are He knows intimately the heart of Father God. And so in this condition, he's, he's getting to the edge of boys. Come on. He's getting to the, the edge of their condition. Boys, you're about to go down a path. You don't want to go down. You're mixing this up with self-importance. They're talking and following Jesus who didn't think twice about making himself bankrupt from everything he had in the Father's presence to come to the earth and walk as a man led by the Holy Spirit. He humbled himself and came before his father like a child. And he's telling them, boys, you are about to embark in dark territory. Don't go there. It's certain destruction if you go there. And so he's telling them the condition of this world that you do not want to imitate is that they'd be better off by their sinful practice trying to lead everybody else into it, they'd be better off to just be thrown in the ocean. In other words, God is groaning in his heart over the condition of what the disciples have just said after all they have experienced. The biblical definition is even more woeful than what is described here. A word of judgment. The word woe in the Greek is O-U-A-I. I'm just going to say owie. <laughs> and is more than just an expression of feeling. This isn't just God felt something. Woe is a judgment as we read in the book of Revelation, chapters 8, 9, 11, and 12. It means alas, or almost like, oh, no. When Jesus heard their heart, he goes, oh, no, boys. No. Don't grieve the Father's heart. You all are sitting like, what is it, pastor? When the word woe is used, it is quite possibly signifying impending doom. 
condemnation or the wrath of God. So it is never used to only emphasize something in a sentence in which it is used. The context is always king when this word is used. Great authority, the highest authority, is grieved when we act like the world. If you didn't, weren't here Thursday night, go back and listen to Thursday night's message because it was filled with the revelation of there's more than a salvation experience. We must mature. Mm. Is this too much? We're almost done. Mm. The Hebrew word for woe, this is the Hebrew word. We just said the Greek word, owie. The Hebrew word for woe is howie. H-O-W-Y. Owie, howie. And essentially it means the very same thing as it does as used in the New Testament. Jesus used the word woe more than anyone else in the Bible. The Gospel of Luke has twice as many woes, 13, than the nearest book in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, which has six. Jesus didn't come with greasy grace and make things easier. He came and gave us an even more astringent walk, but gave us the ability through his grace to be able to do it because we couldn't do it in the Old Testament and through the law, but through grace it can be done. Through grace it can be done. Golly, can I run around this house? I was walking on the new side today. I'm declaring we're going to be over there quickly. Mm -hmm. I got to go on here. And only Matthew has nearly as many, which is 12. 12 times in this book it says it. When God's judgment upon sinful mankind is being revealed, the apostle John writes, whoa, whoa, whoa to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow in Revelation 8.13. It is so rare in the Bible. You'll hear verily, 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 verily. But when a word is used three times for emphasis, in that case, he's showing... By repeating it three times, that the use of this word three times in the Bible is so rare that it is only done when the holiness of God is described in Revelation 4, 8 and Isaiah 6, 3. When we stand before God, we're going to go, <gasps> whoa. We're going to feel grief. Now, now, get a hold of this. We're going to groan. We're going to feel grief when we stand before the Father, when we realize we could have been so much more. It's not a bad thing. The grace of Jesus gets us there.
It's not a bad thing. Jesus used the word woe seven times in Matthew chapter 23, indicating a completeness of the woes or judgments. In chapter 23, he's telling the disciples, getting ready to head into chapter 24, of what the end shall look like. Hmm. Of course, God uses the word, the number seven, to show that his judgment will be complete. In Hosea 7.13, talks about the Philistines living in Canaan. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nations of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. That's Zephaniah 25. There are also woes to them who cause others to stumble in sin, as Habakkuk writes. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. That's Habakkuk 2.15. Have you ever, ever had someone tempt you to sin. If you are a believer that a person who is trying to get you to sin has the judgment or the woe of God on them, as Jesus has just said in Matthew 18, 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. There is also a woe given to those who acquire riches by evil means, as Habakkuk writes. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm, Habakkuk 2.9. This word is very powerful. It carries great, great weight it's coming from the heart of the Messiah who's interpreting the heart of the Father going, boys, don't act like the world. Don't get entangled with the world. And whatever you do, don't tempt somebody else to get into sin. How many of you, when you got saved, all your worldly friends said, oh, you'll be back. They didn't know me very well. Oh, you'll be back. I'm over time. Everybody look at your watch. Groan. Sounds like a woe. I'm going to finish this up. It's not much longer. The greatest concentration of woes in the Bible is found in Matthew 23. Jesus uses them against the religious leaders who believed in their own righteousness which was really no righteousness at all, but a self-righteousness, which was a stench in the nose of God. Jesus first addresses the scribes and the Pharisees by saying, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter in yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in, because they were creating an impossible standard for entering the kingdom that none could seem to enter. And when they made converts, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! 
You hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and the land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte or a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Because you teach them your self-preservation ways. You teach them your self-adulation and your self-righteousness and your self-importance. Is this too hard? Mm, I'm almost done. Matthew 23, 15. He's just saying this. The meaning is that you would do anything to make a convert of Judaism. But then you require so much of them a standard of self-righteousness that no one could possibly ever achieve salvation. The word says they tithe the smallest of things that weren't even required by the law, but neglected the weightier matters of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. They looked holy on the outside, but Jesus knew their heart and that inside they were full of greed and self-indulgence and outwardly they appear beautiful, but within are a sepulcher full of dead men's bones and filled with uncleanness. <laughs> and we just getting started. We going to finish this next week. Come prepared. We must have the righteousness of God to enter the kingdom. No amount of self-righteousness will get you there. God sees our good works as nothing more than filthy rags. That's Isaiah 64 and 6. And God will not accept them. This is what he's telling the disciples. Boys, that path is filthy rags. That's what makes God groan. Why do you want to be self-important? Why do you want to be very ignorant people? Why? Be like this child. Be like this child. Don't enter into sin and don't tempt anyone to sin or the judgment of God stands over you. Am I saying a man can't repent? No, a man can repent, but so often if we're in our own self-righteousness, we think we're okay. We won't turn our heart. We won't bend a knee. We think we got it going on. Mm. Mm. So now I've presented a problem. Since only righteous people can enter into the kingdom, as it is written, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. That's according to Revelation 21, 27. 
Here's how the problem can be solved. We must repent and trust in Christ because it was for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And because of us coming in his lowly stead, because of us entering into covenant with his heart and his childlike faith, us coming into covenant with him, with a heart of, I don't want to hurt my father with my actions. That makes you fit for the kingdom. If you're going to play any other game, you're not in the kingdom. You just think you are. You may have gotten saved. You may have had an experience I'm not saying you won't make heaven. What I'm saying is you're no earthly good. Come on. I'm bringing you revelation. You're no earthly good if you're going to do it your way, in your strength. You can help no one. You're only heaping judgment over your own condition. And next week, it gets worse. Whoa. Father, we thank you for this word today. I know, Father, it was simple. Father, there's nothing in your word that's too hard for man to grasp. But God, we just don't have time to play games. There's no time to be silly. There's no time to be self-motivated. Those days are over. I'm not perfect, but I am in your perfection. I'm certainly not righteous, but I am in your righteousness. I certainly don't measure up, and I'm nothing but filthy rags, but yet I'm white as snow because I have allowed you to not just save me from sin, but to become the Lord of my life in every aspect of the word to allow you to be my God, to take me where I cannot go by myself. And Father, my heart is grieving for the world because I'm seeing, Father, how this all ends. For you're crying out woe over the world. It's Antichrist ways. It's globalization. It's fear-mongering. It's trying to control the greed that's at the top of the agenda. Souls so full of themselves that all they can think about is their own self-preservation and they don't care who they step on, walk on, hurt or kill or maim to get it done. Whoa. I pray for those souls now, God. If there be a way, God, waken those so they don't have to cry for the mountains to fall on them when your judgment arrives.
whether there are people who are up and out or down and out today. Father, I've driven by this week, this very week, people living underneath a bridge. And God, they need you. We're not here preaching this, Father, in some self-righteous, pompous attitude. We're here in true humility like a child going, God, help them. We want to bind up their wounds. We want to heal their brokenness. Help us, Lord. Give me the words to say, the heart to do it in. If you're here this morning, my last act of worship, if you're here this morning, something inside of you is saying, I just need to pray. I just need to be with the master for a minute. If that's you, would you raise your hand up? Just signify because I want to. Yes. Thank you. That's on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's honest. That's so honest. That's so honest. Praise his name. If you're sitting here today and what I said hits your heart and suddenly you're awake to really how important these last fleeting moments of time are. Would you signify by raising your hand? I want to be about the Father's business. Would you raise that hand? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Pastor Terry, bring your lovely wife. Pastor Steve, bring your lovely wife. If you raised your hand in either realm of hand raising and you want someone to just agree with you for just a moment in prayer, make your way quickly. This is our last act of worship. But if you need a touch from the master, this is that moment. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. If you raised your hand, just come on. And let's find someone to pray with. Give me some more lit students up here to help me pray. Father, we magnify you. The rest of you, for just a moment, I know it's past time to be out of church, but if you would just... In reverence, allow these for just a few moments to pray without any extra moving around or disturbance. I would so greatly appreciate that. Those of you who have faiths, stretch your hands this way for those who just need an extra touch today. If you're streaming today, you can experience this same thing right where you are. Stretch your hand this way, Father, I pray for these who feel a tugging and a stirring in their heart. God, I ask, Lord, that you would move and mightily undertake. I ask, Father, that you would cause this individual, Father, to feel you in the fullness right now. There's no distance, Father, in the anointing. And so, Father, I pray for these right now 
who are reaching this direction, God, in the name of Jesus. Fill the empty voids. Take our iniquities and our sins, Father, and throw them and cast them as far as the east is from the west. We repent, Father, and we come like a child, humble and lowly and ready for you, Master. We want your way, not our way. We don't want to be self-righteous. We want to be held in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. If you saw this on television, or heard this on radio, drop us a line. Passion Church. You can find us online. If you don't want to do it that way and you want to send us a letter, it's Passion Church, 1119 Bryan Road, Cameron, Missouri, 64429. God bless you. Thank you for being a part of Passion Church.